Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a podcast from the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host, podcast producer, and sports writer for the LSJ, joined by free beat writer Chris Solari and LSJ sports columnist Graham Couch. We have got a full podcast for you here. Today, we're going to spend most of the time talking about Michigan State's resurgence following their two recent wins over the past week. And then at the back half of the episode, I will talk with Nate Atkins as we will kind of break down uh, Michigan State recruit Keon Coleman and then talk about the two new incoming transfers and Ben Van Sumeren and Chester uh, for Michigan and Chester Kimbrough from Florida. But guys, uh, we need to take a look in the mirror for ourselves a little bit here, I think, because at this time, a week ago, we had more or less uh, written the obituary or spoke the obituary for the Michigan State men's basketball team on this on this very podcast. We were looking ahead to the future, how teams the team might look in 2021, 2022, talking about the incoming recruits. And then now, a week later, to... To use an, a meme from the office, oh, how the turntables, as the Spartans have beaten Indiana and then a, on Saturday and then a very big win on Tuesday night over number four, Illinois. Um, so let's start there. I uh, think we should start by going back and listening to that podcast because I'm pretty sure that both Graham and I said that there is a possibility because of the way that the schedule shaped up. We might not have thought there was a possibility, and there still may not be a possibility. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one game. I mean, it's, let's face it, Michigan State's going to need a lot more based on the hole that they dug for themselves than just one game over Illinois. Uh, but there's no question that what you saw in that game wasn't a fluke. I mean, what you saw against Indiana uh, kind of extrapolated in that game, Graham. Yeah, I mean – and I did, uh, to, to be fair, Phil, I did pretty much write the old bit. But to be fair to us, did, I, think Izzo thought it, I think Izzo thought it was over. And, you know, like his tone and where he was after the Purdue game spoke of that, right? I don't think he thought this was coming. And frankly, 10 minutes into the Indiana game, <laughs> we didn't see this coming either. Yeah. It, it, what's remarkable is, is how – just together and connected and all this stuff they look and 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 guys like you know we've seen this before with seniors so it's not totally out of the blue where uh, you know what you're seeing from a joshua langford right now and and aaron henry is essentially a senior he knows this is it for him the the idea that you you feel the end coming and you reach another level and you don't want to go out with a whimper and you're just kind of like screw it we're going to we're going to do this. And, and so, I mean, they have 16 rebounds and the two really efficient games Langford's played and the level of leadership he's found. Um, but, but the more remarkable thing, I mean, Henry has stepped up his game, which I thought we all thought was possible. Langford is, is found a gear and turned back the clock, but with some senior savvy. Um, but, but I think the fact they've gone to this small lineup that's worked so well uh, and, and, 
that Rocket Watts is such a big part of it. I mean, he's gone 63 minutes with one turnover in the last two games. I, I think those are maybe the more surprising things because I didn't think Izzo would ever do this, even though I thought it, like a lot of people thought it might be the right move. And I, and I didn't think it was going to happen for Watts this year at point guard. I really, really did. Yeah, and I'll tell you what helps. And I think part of it what helps is that you have Langford and you have Henry both capable of bringing up the ball. That, I think, takes some pressure off him. I think that, you know, as you saw in Illinois, when they started going, and I thought they went way too late to that trap. I think they should have pressed a lot sooner than they did against Michigan State's guards. You know, when you when you know that a team is penchant, is, is going to turn the ball over um, and has turned the ball over, you know, you, you try and force some. And I don't, I don't think Brad. I think that's one of the Brad Underwood's faults in that game, uh, that he went to that a little bit too late. But even still, Michigan State at that point broke the press pretty easily. And when you press like that, you have to take Coburn out of the game. And you know, Coburn was having his way down low. But I think the other things that help Watts is that everything you know they're getting out and running, and that helps. Um, he's with, with that smaller lineup. He's not the only guy worried about there was one little play okay it was early in the the first half maybe midway through the first half where Trent Frazier blew by Watts around the left side and do you know what happened something that hasn't happened often very much this year um, because of the personnel they had on the floor Joshua Langford recognized it slid over and back and stopped Trent Frazier's drive and forced him back out to reset the offense that right there is is something that taking pressure off Rocket Watts and, and not worried about, hey, if I'm getting beat, nobody's going to be back there to help me. He got some help. That's one of the things with that, that defensive lineup with when you have Henry and Brown and Langford, they've got that length to, to help cover some of those gaps. And, and you know, when you, you take that away from you take that out of the equation and get that out of his head that he's worried about getting beat all the time. Well, now you get a different player on the offensive side. Well, that, that's what the defense, that's essentially what Izzo's defense supposed to be, right? It's a gap help. Right. Elbow deep. I mean, it's it, that, and it, when it works well, it, it's, it, it, that's what it is. And you're right. You see them, uh, Langford so savvy in that. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing is, too, that I think when you get guys who are, when you get four guys who can handle the ball a little bit, you know, Gabe, Brown, Gabe Brown's not a ball handler, but he's comfortable. Like when they were facing that trap, there was one play where they, you know, threw the ball up the court along the sideline. Gabe Brown caught it quickly, just threw it back to the guy. Who, like there, there, all these things that could be turnovers are suddenly not, you know. And yeah. and 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 I think that's interesting to watch those guys go together. There was a, a three pointer that Henry passed up that he swung to Langford, and, and they're just. I, they're just they're in a different place right now and they, they um yeah and, and henry is i mean let's be honest he went head to head with ao and uh yeah outplayed him and and i mean these last two games if, if 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 henry wanted to like opt out right now and just take the vhs from these last two games and send it to the nba and say here's 79 minutes of me scoring 47 points and being efficient and also guarding power forwards and guarding point guards and AO and all this stuff like that to him, like that, it was, it's impressive. He has been unbelievable the last couple of games. Yeah. He averaged, I mean, he's averaging the last seven games, uh, nearly 20 points a game. Um, yep. and you're seeing him, I, you know, down at Indiana, I was able to kind of get a court level view almost probably the best view I've had in years 
uh, in, in a lot of places, uh, other than maybe Michigan State. But you could see him moving guys with his eyes and reacting to the defense. You know, that's that's next level kind of stuff. You know, yeah. if he if he gets a guy off his feet, he's driving. If he if he if he gets a guy to shift, he he he's gonna try and get a pass in there. He, I mean, there's so many different things that he's able to do, just beyond dribbling and and shooting that that alter a defense. Um, but I also think the other thing with that game, you saw Izzo. I think he's finally starting to get into some better rotations. He he's finding combinations that work. He's yeah. using Joey Hauser in situations that aren't putting him in a disadvantage defensively. Um, he's he's using that small lineup right now uh, with to to effectiveness. Um, and I think one of the other things with that smaller lineup, you saw them get out and run. I mean, the when you talk about Langford getting the boards, his ability to either pass or push, uh, you can't really you know same with Henry. Um, you can't really discount that because that's part of the reason, you know, that when when the big guys get rebounds, they're robotic, um, and and they they immediately look to a spot uh, to push the break. And I think teams have started challenge. You know, there's been teams that have challenged those passes. Uh, Rutgers comes to mind. Nebraska comes to mind, where they're just they're just waiting after a rebound in the passing lane, and the big guys don't even think about it. Hauser is one of the the biggest culprits of that. It, it, even on a make, I mean, down in Indiana twice, he, you know, one on an inbound pass underneath and then one on a, on a takeout, you know, at the other end where he just gets the ball and just looks to a spot and isn't really paying attention to the defense. So when you have the guard presence of those three guys, you know, with Watts and with Henry and with, and really with Brown too, because he's able to run it up the wing and, and, and really get things going down the court. Um, you know, the, the play, I think maybe where Sissoko got, got a foul on Coburn, um, those guys were running the court. And, you know, that's those are things that were missing for the last two months. And, and I, I do think, though, that, that some of it, as Izzo has said, is that, you know, these guys are getting their fatigue, or getting their stamina back, getting their legs back, getting back into basketball physical shape and mindset uh, coming out of their COVID pause of 20 days. I mean, that is that is a good long amount of time to go without a game in the middle of a season. Um but you're also seeing things that maybe weren't there even during that f- first stretch of the season, just by the, the smaller lineups that he's thrown out there. So I want to build off something you said there, Chris. You talked about the little things that maybe they were doing differently now that they weren't doing earlier in the season. I just simply, it's to me, it's just simply they're making shots. I mean, Joey Hauser was the most effective last night that he's been in quite some time. I think he made every attempt, 12 points in 13 minutes or 13 points in 12 minutes. One one of those two things I can't remember off the top of my head. But, you know, he was missing wide open shots for the first the entire third and basically the entirety of the season. Joshua Langford, uh, that might just been a legs thing for him as well, but he was missing a lot of wide open looks. And now these past two games, or maybe even one and a half games, he's hitting shots over and look as explosive as get all. And uh, Gabe Brown is knocking down his three pointers now. So to me, it just seems like, yes, all of the other little things are also true. But at the at the end of the day, at brass tacks, it's, they're making shots. Simple explanation, but there's little things that, and Graham brought it up last week with the ball being delivered in the shooting pocket for guys. I think that Hauser, um, in particular, caught looking to shoot and not thinking the game. Um, you know, that's not necessarily just making a shot. That's thinking that that's taking the thinking process out and playing and and reacting. Which sometimes I don't think he he you know when he was in his own head and struggling. Same with Watts. I, I think there are points where. 
where Watts has just been thinking the game more than just playing his style. And, and some of that comes from the hard coaching that Izzo has. Some of it comes from the shift to point guard. Uh, some of it comes from a lot of other things. And Langford, I mean, listen, I asked, I, I went back and listened. I asked, uh, you know, December 31st, I asked Izzo about potentially playing Langford Summit point guard. And that was before the Nebraska game at home. And he wasn't ready to at that point because he didn't want to tinker with his shot. He, he wanted him to get back healthy at that point in terms of his legs and, and just getting in basketball shape that maybe he, he lost some of in, two, in, in a year and a half. Uh, then he had the COVID pause. You know, that Langford, remember, Langford was the one basically who really triggered it. Um, that, uh, you know, that stoppage, I, you know, I think when Izzo finally reassessed it, and, and maybe it was out of desperation in the moment, you know, there in late January, early February, when he decided, you know what, we got to give this a try. I don't know, but um, Langford has looked like a different cat. And maybe Langford, even himself, is just when Izzo talks about the leadership, saying, "Put it on me. Give me the ball. Let me let me help however I can in whatever role." And I think Henry's done that too. We do forget that, like, there was this these these COVID pauses in the year where guys in the middle of their season, you know, were derailed for three weeks and and whatever momentum they may have had. I mean, you think about a guy like Sissoko who was starting to play regularly and then was out for for a long time. Um, I. I I think it's more than just making shots, though, Phil. I like I, I think like Langford it was it had a lot of five for sixteen type games, and now he's eleven for seventeen. But he was like five for six in a game. He was like he's he's taking fewer better shots, and and so is Watts for that matter. Watts have been pretty pretty efficient. Um, I mean, this next game will be interesting because it was the, the last game of January. Gabe Brown wasn't there, and Watts. And that was the, the Ohio State game. Gabe Brown wasn't there, and Watts, um, Henry, and Langford all had miserable shooting days. Yeah, and so you, you'll, you'll see a little bit of. But because one of the things I think it's important for the team is, yeah, Gabe Brown hit shots, but he only hit one of two threes against Illinois. The different you get a guy like Hauser hit shots in his place. They need somebody to hit shots, and that's why those two guys are important. That's why Hauser's, you know, sort of the AJ Granger needs to be that for this team for the rest of the way. That's who he is for these particular guys, and he'll play some at the five. You know, I also think something that's changed is sort of a, a come to terms with what they have at the big at, at center and who they are and what they're going to have to do. And, you know, there's no longer Izzo trying to figure out which of the four. He knows it's none of them and it's all of them. <laughs> like, and, and that, like, and there are some tremendous advantages that last night, or uh, we're recording this obviously on, on Wednesday. So on Tuesday night, you know, they played a hack of Kofi and they Kofi Coburn was three for 11 from the line. And that's what you should do with him. You've got 20 fouls to give and they use 17 of them with a couple guys fouling out. And another guy getting thrown out, you know, I mean, that wasn't a foul on Coburn that caused it, but they use those fouls and they ought to do that against Miles Johnson and Rutgers. They ought to do that against guys who struggle shooting free throws Um and, and and so that's a, that's something they have in their pocket. There, there's no one center that they fear losing enough not to make his fouls more valuable than he is, if that makes any sense. But, you know, I think there's a buy-in that's coming with those four guys as well. Um, I, I feel like the last couple of games, it seemed like those guys aren't necessarily maybe trying to impress to win the starting job so much as they are just 
understanding a little bit better where they are in the role and understanding they're all going to probably get about even amount of minutes if they play the right way. And I think Izzo's handled the rotation on the bigs really well, um, particularly, uh, you know, after Marble picked up too early at, at Indiana in the first half, too early in the second half. You know, he, he did a better job of getting him in and out of there and, and not allowing him to to get into significant foul trouble right away quickly going to the, the other guys and keeping that rotation going. Um, but I also think you've seen some strength with them. Um, you know, Marble obviously has it, but, I mean, Bingham, look, lost in that game was that dunk that Bingham had over Coburn. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, not only was that an important play at that moment, but moving forward, I mean, Marcus Bingham w- attacked and didn't get knocked to the ground by a dude that was basically 80 pounds heavier than him. He also blocked a Coburn duck attempt as well. He did. And, of course, the rim also blocked a, a Georgie Benchavilla's <laughs> yes. dunk attempt, which was, that was fantastic. Cool. And that reminds and me it, of like, dunking a nine-foot rim in my driveway and <laughs> doing things go awry. It's not often that you see the rim not only cause a block shot but then a turnover on the other side when, when he walked with the ball, But which is, you know, that was, you know, cue, cue uh, yakety sacks with that one. But... Um, he didn't play. I, much, I, he didn't play much of it at all after that. So, yeah. It's, it, but listen, the Sissoko foul on on Io may have been the biggest play of the game because Io missed three of his four free throws after that, and though that was a momentum point in that game. Um, even though Michigan State was really down to one foul with Bingham and then went to Hauser the rest of the way, um, what that ended up doing because Io's Io started missing at the line. He missed from outside. Uh, I mean, it didn't look like he had clear vision and and you know that's the old adage that coaches will tell you in practice but maybe won't say publicly is follow a guy follow him hard and make sure he feels it and if there's a guy that you're going to do that to it's going to be io and you're probably not going to have the same effect on coburn but what that ended up doing is because they were down 10 they had to pull coburn anyways they couldn't go to coburn because they they had to get shooters that late in the game if they if they uh they beat in the Big Ten tournament again. There, there will be some retaliation for that. I think. Oh, there um, was some. There was some retaliation throughout this game. I thought the Hogard yeah. play, you know, with with Coburn early in the game, set some tone. I mean, yeah. where where have we seen this team show this kind of edge? And it's coming from the two freshmen. It is. You know, what's going to be really interesting is when Foster Lawyer comes back, and this is the the, the fan segment we can call it. You know, this is where everybody gets <laughs> what, what, what um, if, if you know because when he comes back, obviously. He's not going to play no minutes. And so how does Izzo work that? Say Michigan State tomorrow minus Foster Lawyer beats Ohio State with Rocket Watts playing 30 again. You know, it, it, start, it, it comes to the point where that's clearly become your answer and your best option. If he has another game where he takes care of Michigan State, uh, you know, we'll see if he can do it three straight games. Um, I think that would be a big, big step for him. What, what they do with Foster Lawyer, and, and, and I think at that point you have to look at Lawyer's minutes as part of the Hogard situation. You're not looking at Lawyer as part of an either-or with Watts, and I think that's yeah. going to have to change. And and maybe maybe in, in certain matchups, uh, Foster Lawyer is a better situation than, than, than Hogard, and you're going to play him and not Hogard, but I, I don't think you'd take away from Watts and what they have going right now. Yeah, Hogart only played nine minutes in that game against Illinois, and you know that's not a lot to divvy up there. And maybe you just use Lawyer at this point as an emergency situation, 
um, in case of fouls. And then, because he seems like the kind of guy as a captain and leader in a basketball sense to see what's going on. He's got to recognize it. Yep, absolutely. And and you also have to ask yourself at what percentage is Foster Lawyer coming back at? If, if you got right. a shoulder injury, I mean, you know that that affects your passing, that affects your shooting. Those are the two things that he can do. And you know, if you're running into screens and that thing's gonna gonna be dangling, um, you know. You, you'd be better off saying, okay, you know what? I'm just going to sit this until we get to the Big Ten tournament and let it rest and heal as much as possible and then kind of go from there. Yeah, while we're talking about minutes, uh, I'm going to switch positions, but talk about Aaron Henry. He played all 40 minutes on Saturday against Indiana. He played 39 last night against Illinois. Uh, is that a sustainable amount for him going forward, or is that just a necessity, do you think, for Izzo and the Spartans at this point? It, that's a really you – know, it, it, you know, he says, I don't have time to get tired, but – um, you know, I remember a lot of games coming up. Yeah. And I, and I do remember That's once a big I, covered, thing. I covered a Lansing community college team years and years ago that because of guys who were ineligible wound up with like four dudes who could really play like four guys were like D one caliber. And then the rest of the team was like, not you and me and stuff, but they were, you know, it was the, the drop off was significant. Could they, they beat Western have, Michigan? What's that? Could they beat Western Michigan? With uh, they had guys who could play at Western. I also, be- I also can't believe you included you in grouping us in there because I know you think that you could have played at LCC. Not even, not no. even as a kid, but now. <laughs> <laughs> what it, what the point There's is, time. the point is, they would play these top four guys like between thirty-seven and forty minutes, and they would rotate the other position. And I remember once asking one of the guys because I, of course, was doing the radio play-by-play. I was the voice of Lansing Community College basketball at the time. I remember asking about what does it even matter when you sit down for 30 seconds and, and you know what and they, they would talk about if you get 30 seconds to just get off your feet take a breath watch it you know just not race up and down the court at that pace keep in mind there are no media timeouts in junior college basketball too so it's even worse but it, it makes a difference and i do think they need to be they need to make sure they're getting the best of henry late in games and You've got to find spots to take them out wisely. It's clear. It's been clear all year. He needs to be 35 minutes plus. When they haven't, they've had disasters. They took him out for eight minutes against Iowa, and a 10-point lead became a 19-point lead. They took him out for what was supposed to be 10 seconds against Northwestern, and they lost the game because of it. They didn't start him at uh, uh, Minnesota. Minnesota was a disaster. So he's got to be on the court. So you've got to find ways, you know, get him out going into a media timeout, that sort of stuff. And but. The Cassius yeah, Winston yeah. approach the last couple of years to, to alleviate Absolutely. that was that was to alleviate knee issues, but but still, I mean, that's where Foster Lawyer you'd see him maybe forty five seconds to a minute before the media timeout, and then either come out at the media timeout or shortly after. The other thing, though, for these guys, Henry's playing for his NBA life and for Michigan State and his legacy and everything they're trying to win. Langford is playing for some you know, some higher purpose right now. And, you know, these guys are, they, they can feel the end. There isn't much time they have to get through. Yeah. It feels like a lot of games, but it's a lot of games. It's going to end really abruptly and not that long from now. And so, um, I, and I, I, uh, I, I, I am curious about the minutes and I'm curious about, you know, Gabe Brown's playing about 30 right now, which is men. And they've gone with this small lineup, just really relegated Malik Hall to almost nothing right now. And because he doesn't fit as well at that five spot as Hauser when they go real small and have him be an offensive five. And 
So I am, you know, you want to keep, you know, you, you want to make sure these guys are still in the right frame of mind and, and understand that something is and that. So that is, that is the challenge for Langford as a leader, for lawyer, uh, for all these guys to recognize this team has found something with a smaller rotation. And it's what a lot of people suspect. I think the hard thing for fans right now is a lot of times, you know, fans think something and they're wrong. But what Izzo stumbled upon, people have been yelling at him to do for months. Yes. And so I think that's the thing. It's like, this is supposed to be a Hall of Fame coach. How come? Now, Izzo's counterpoint, I would say, is the Kithier situation. People wanted Kithier to transfer out of the program. They were going to drive him themselves to get him out of the program. And yet, here's a kid who was clearly against Indiana. And when you play a more savvy power forward, like Trace Jackson Davis, the answer for them in the post. He gave us three points. Three points in 10 minutes, and the dude had 34 points against him. Yes. I mean, that's, yes. you know, you, you saw his ability to force guys out of the paint. You know, one of the things that I said, I think maybe last week, there's, there's a lot of mismatched parts. But I think what the last two games have shown is Izzo's tinkering. Um, it, it Sometimes it's tinkering within a system, and sometimes it's tinkering with the system, right? I mean, you saw it. When Nick Ward got hurt a couple years ago and he brought in Tillman and started to go to a little more motion offense and get away from sets and, you know, you, you started to see a different kind of approach. I think that's maybe what we're seeing here. I mean, he I, I think Izzo sees what this this lineup has done. And and yeah. listen, he's afraid he's afraid to play guys 30 minutes because of that long term effect. And we don't know. I mean, Phil, you mentioned this very briefly, but. 35, 40 minutes a game, uh, you know, when you have six games in 13 days, not to mention the three before that, the week before that, right. um, with everything being so condensed, and then having to go straight to Indianapolis for the Big Ten tournament, um, not knowing if you're going to be there trying to play to win your way in or on a bubble or where you're going to be at. I mean, the, it, it's 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 a fine line for for – Izzo right now on on worrying about the now and staying in the moment with the individual games like they've talked about and saying we got to win this game and then I'm only worried about Ohio State now and then after that it'll be I'm only worried about Maryland and then it'll be I'm only worried again about Indiana forget about Michigan you know that's if you you have to think the long term as well um, which is hard when you're when you're basically fighting to to keep that streak alive and get into the tournament, even if you're saying you're not fighting for it. Yeah, you are. You're absolutely are. Even he said it a, a week or two ago, you know, every streak that he has in this program matters. That's absolutely the one that, that he takes the most pride in because it shows the consistency that he's built. Chris, I think that's a great segue into maybe our next topic here. And what does Michigan State have to do from here on out to make the NCAA tournament? How many wins do they need? Uh, does it matter which wins they are, or is it just a sheer number of wins that will get the job done? Graham, I'll start with you. Oh, it matters which they are. You know, it's, it's um, surmising with a few different people on this, and, um, you know, including Kevin Pauga over at MSU, who runs the KPI metric, and, and just trying to, because I've sort of had a, a feeling on this all around and wanted to see if I was right. My general thought has been, to be on the bubble, and I don't know which side of the bubble you'll land, but to be on the bubble and in the comp- serious conversation, you need to be 8-12. and 12. And now I thought that all year, with, assuming the Big Ten tournament was going to be canceled. It appears they are going to play this thing. So that changes the dynamic because you can't just go – I don't think you can be 8-13. and 13. And Minnesota is falling flat so quickly that um, you're probably not going to play that 
Well, it depends. It depends what Michigan State does. There's a chance you're not going to play on Wednesday anymore. So if if you're going to um, if if you're going to play uh, Purdue or Maryland or uh, Wisconsin, who you're probably going to play, that game is going to really matter on that Thursday game. But yeah, if you get to eight and twelve, and it's you lose to Michigan twice in Ohio State, and you beat Maryland and Indiana, and that's not how I think this is going to happen. Um, and then, but I really think you've got to win a game in the Big Ten tournament to be on the bubble. He uh, Palga thinks that nine and eleven likely gets them in uh, for sure. Eight and twelve is the bubble. And the thing is, if you're eight, what you you're better off doing if you're Michigan State and Maryland's been fantastic of late. Yeah, you're yeah. better off losing a game like at Maryland and beating Ohio State or one of the Michigan games and getting the eight and twelve. And if you do it like that, you're probably in, in pretty good shape because you have five quad one wins. And uh, and you know two number one and number two seeds right right at the end of the year. Yeah, at the moment the only game that's left that's a quad two game will be Indiana at home, and the win there was a quad one win because I think they were top, I think they were in the top seventy five. So, you know that gets them another that gets them the two quad one wins and back to back games, and you know Michigan Ohio State are both top five in the net rankings, and you know we, we again we don't know what metrics this committee is going to use because of the the oddities of the season and you know just exactly how many teams have games that they didn't make up how short a game some teams are i mean it's just it is kind of a a, a bit of an unknown right now with that but uh, you know i i kind of went into this saying you know you win four of these games you're in right Maybe three, maybe three does it if you get the right combination. I mean, but I also get, I also don't think that you can necessarily lose the Indiana game. I think that's a big one right there. You cannot slip that one um, because all of a sudden that's a bad loss comparatively. I mean, that's no, quad, quad two. I, I don't think it's a horrible loss. It's not yeah, a horrible I mean, loss, but if you're trying to, if you're trying to make a statement to the committee and what, let, you, ask, what you did, what you did at throw. Indiana, but again, what you did at Indiana, um, at, to to win on the road and then I mean, but again, what is what is road and what is home anymore? And but but if you win on the road and then you lose at home, I mean that's a wash. You you've you've negated that that ground you made up with that road win. Right, but my argument with that would be if you're going to go three and three, the stronger play would be, and obviously losing to Maryland's better than losing to Indiana. But the stronger play, if you were to beat say Ohio State, you're better off beating Ohio State and losing to Indiana than you would be. Losing to Ohio State and not and, and beating Indiana and having the same three wins. That would be my, my argument. Would be only that if you are going to wind up at three. The ideal thing is you beat Indiana either way. The but, diversity uh, in the win column. The, the idea that the with, strength with the teams those, that yeah, with the, the strength of those wins are so good that you, you you'd rather have that. But that yeah, it, it will be interesting because I do think some mid majors are going to get royally screwed this year, and um, just because they didn't get to play the non conference stuff and. And you know it's 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 a tough deal for the committee too, frankly, because you're right. I mean, right now in the net rankings, Colgate is like 13. That's an outlier. That's not supposed to be real. Like now that the metrics are screwy, everything's. You know what else hurts Michigan State that no one even seems to think about and talk about? They're six and zero going to Virginia, and that game gets wiped out. Yeah, they probably would have won that game at that point where yeah. they were at, or very close to it, with where Virginia was trending at that point because they were they trending might be down. Unbeaten. They might be unbeaten in the ACC period. The ACC's yeah. horrible. But that would have been a, that would have been a significant road win and quad yeah. one win on their resume. 
Uh, I mean, non-conference too. So that would have, I mean, that's, you know, you, you talk about some of the, the factors that come into play here. I mean, and, and the frustration that it, Izzo and, and that camp felt going there and then having that game pulled out from under, under them. Um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that that's one that no one seems to talk about. I don't think that game is getting made up, by the way. So as it stands right now in the net rankings, Michigan State is 75th. Uh, I'll read off the, the teams in front of them, behind them. St. Mary's is at 70, followed by Winthrop, North Texas, Furman, Western Kentucky, and then Michigan State at 75, Abilene, Christian, Auburn, Davidson, St. John's, and Dayton at number 80. So that's kind of the group they're in right now, net rankings-wise. So let me ask you Love guys. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you guys this. I think when we did this week ago, if I had, if I had said, is Michigan State going to make the NCAA tournament, I think all three of us would have said no. A week later, how are you feeling about the Spartans and say tournament chances, Chris? It's all going to be dependent on the the next week and a half. I mean, that's all. Honestly, that's that was always going to be the situation. Sure, I think that was there was no question that, you know, it wasn't going to be one or two games with where they were at at that point last week, um, particularly coming off that Purdue loss uh, and how bad the Iowa loss was. Um, they had a lot of ground to make up, and they still have a lot. They still have ground to make up, but not as much because of how they looked and what they did in those last 30 minutes in Indiana and carrying it over and, and beating a top five Illinois team. I would think, I, I tend to think they're going to somehow get in. I don't know why. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll feel very differently after Ohio state. If they don't look the same, it's not about beating Ohio state, right? It's about how you look. And it's, if they look competitive, if they look, cause Ohio state's going to be a one seed, maybe worst a two seed. I mean, Michigan State isn't supposed to. If Michigan State loses to Ohio State by seven points in a competitive game, there there is no shame in that. You know, there's no nothing wrong with that. They gotta they gotta keep winning other places. Um, but if they go in, you know, if this winds up being 17 points again, and they look outclassed and they look disjointed and and the DNA of their, uh, you know, when they're not cohesive comes back. Um, I'm, I'm waiting this. You know, it's still one of those things where you kind of gotta. Got to see it to believe it a couple more times because it, it is fresh. I mean, we are not that far removed. Where I was watching the beginning of that Indiana game, thinking oh, that that that's that's not only was the Purdue game a wrap, but this is a double wrap. You know, like I don't even yeah. know what the and and now we got a whole different conversation. So I, I want to see and, and Kyle Young being out for Ohio State, I think matters. Uh, he's a real good glue guy and real good player. Um, so I, yeah, I, I if you had to, I would say they get in. And that's, I mean, again, you know, they could they could do everything that you said about being disjointed and, and falling apart against Ohio State and even maybe stumbling against Maryland. Then if they win their last three games, now all of a sudden we're back to where we're at this week where you just it, it, you just throw it against the fan because you, you're, I mean, it, who knows? You know, because let's say, let's say somehow they would have beat Michigan twice in a row to, to, to close out the regular season. So that would be massive, right? I mean from a momentum standpoint, from a playing standpoint, um, or let's say that they beat, they, they win, you know, three of those games. Maybe let's say they win Maryland. They say lose Ohio State, win Maryland, uh, one Michigan game, and Indiana. I mean, you know, it's there's so many variables right now that, that can come into play with, with five games left because of where they put themselves that it's just so hard to, like, there are years where you're just like, yeah, this team's in, no, this team's out. Um, like this is the epitome of what a bubble is right now because it's so much dependent on uh, it's in their hands. They, they, the situation 
got put in their hands with the way the schedule got shaken up and and given to them as hard as it might be um you take care of your business you're in so this is going to admittedly be sort of a weird thing to say but i would kind of like to see michigan state win a game where both teams are playing at their normal level um like for example indiana was four of 21 from three-point land in that game. That's not that's pretty uncharacteristic for the Hoosiers this year. And then Illinois shot 24% in the first half and all those missed free throws in the second half. I know those averages are way off from what Illinois and Indiana normally do. So. Well, how much how much of that is right. based on Michigan State defense, sure. though? I mean, Michigan State's three-point defense has been outstanding. I, I would say they played a bigger factor defensively in the Illinois game than Indiana game in terms of it really seemed like Indiana missed a lot of open threes in that one. But you can, so you can disagree with that. So speaking of backcourts that couldn't beat the three of us, like the Hoosiers, like whatever the Hoosiers do, like, I'm sorry, they're awful. Like Indiana is dysfunctional <laughs> and awful. Like I know that uh, whatever Xander Christian or whatever, right, Christian the, the Langer. Five-star five guy, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what, what are we doing? With, how are stars? Like that, that should be the end of 24-7 and rivals. Like that dude is the end of 24-7 and rivals. I have not seen one thing other than dribbling around the top of the key. He, he, he's like – you know, he's like Tum Tum Nairn with a pom pom on his head, uh, but without the speed. I don't know what what he what he offers. I, I have no idea. Like Indiana's backcourt is abysmal. Yeah, so. he is. He is. A, he is a guy who reclassified and maybe should have maybe stuck in high school another year, perhaps. Yeah. Still, he's a five star. I know. I know. I'm just yeah. Right. Yeah, I have no idea how that. So Indiana. I mean, Indi- Indiana's level is what I mean, Indiana has no consistency, so they don't really have a level. Sure. Um. To but to your point, I know what you mean. And that's what we need to see about, like, be, is Michigan State real? I, I thought what they did, the reason it didn't feel like an upset, right, is what, there's not a big crowd at Breslin. It wasn't a game where they hit a million threes, the crowd went nuts, the other team shot horribly. I thought they were – I thought they bullied Illinois. And I thought that's what made it more real. So let's – you know, but you're right. I want to see, you know, if, if Ohio State plays well, can you not be outclassed? That's a good question. It's it's going to be interesting to see if they can carry that bullying nature over too, because that, you know, as as I said, we hadn't really seen that from this group. You know, no one looks at Aaron Henry and Josh Langford um, and says, and Marcus Bingham and says, well, these guys are here to throw down. But that that Illinois game was a different tenor, all the way from from number zero. And number one as the leaders, all the way down to number thirty and forty-four um, as guys that were playing with edge. Um, and then you throw in, like I said earlier, I mean, you throw in the Hogard play, you throw in the Sissoko fouls. Um, there, there was an edge that was there. You know, maybe it's the. I, I thought that Tim, uh, Frazier said it pretty, pretty well. Trent Frazier, um, you know, he, he said they were, they were expecting a pit bull, and and they got it. And that maybe was the biggest surprise of everything that happened in that Illinois game. That's out of character for these guys. And can they bottle it? I don't know. I really don't. By the next time we reconvene, which will be sometime next week, Michigan State will probably play at least three games. They'll have they'll have uh, Ohio State on Thursday, Maryland on Sunday, and then Indiana on Tuesday. So maybe we'll reconvene on that Wednesday before the two Michigan games in the year. How do you guys think the next three games will play out? For the Spartans, which Spartans? Who shows up? Yeah, I mean that's literally that's you know it's it's uh, it's 
spin a wheel, you know, to borrow from dial a clue. Um, it's spin a wheel of which Spartans are going to show up. I mean, you know, is it going to be the Iowa team that they got blown out by 30 and, and look discombobulated from start to finish? Is it going to be the first 10 minutes of Indiana? Is it going to be the last 30 minutes of that game? Is it going to be the full 40 against Illinois? I really don't know. I mean, but I will say this, that, they, you know, the, there's some retribution that they, they will want to get from Ohio State. I think that that's that's important, and, and Gabe Brown being in the mix, and Langford now fully back, and 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 that that'll help them. They may even have a little bit of a size and tenacity advantage in the post, um, in some ways, uh, in this game coming out of the Illinois game. But um, you know, then you still got to go to Maryland. You still got uh, Indiana. So I. I you know, and Indiana is going to come in with the same kind of mindset, you know, and then they may be playing for their lives at that point. So I, you know, it's so hard to say about what you're going to see. And it's kind of, it's kind of a mirror of the whole season, really. I mean, it's, you know, nothing's overly predictable right now. So I would, um, if I had to guess, I'd say one and two. And, but that's only because I'm predicting them to lose to Ohio state. And I don't know that they will. Um, I, I mean, I think it'll be a competitive game. I think Kyle Young's absence matters. It helps MSU play small. Uh, I think Maryland right now is really good. I think that's a tough game. I, not that they can't beat Maryland, but Maryland's playing really well. So I, my, my hunch is one and two, which adds to the drama, right? Because if they're one and two in their next uh, two games, they're going to have to beat Michigan to get to a spot where they're on the bubble really going to the tournament. They're going to have to beat them once. And that's that's going to add to the... Uh, drama of that and um, so I would say one and two is what happens but I say that not yet completely believing that they're going to keep repeating what we've just seen if they if they are the team we just saw for this the last 70 minutes then they will finish two and one at worst and they'll be very much alive in that Ohio State game and I will say this though remember how last week we said how bad is Michigan gonna take it to them well, I don't necessarily know with how they played those last 70 minutes. Now that changes the dynamic again. You know, I mean, what, how can you predict it at this point with this group? All right. Great podcast, guys. Any final thoughts before we check out of here for the for the week? I, I'm ready for <laughs> this last run of basketball and then take a deep breath for however long until spring football starts March 23rd. <laughs> it's going to be, it's, you know, it's interesting because I think we'd all, it, it, it's a weird thing when you're sort of resigned that something is not going to happen. And then all of a sudden there is something that changes the dynamic. And that's what just happened. And it's sort it's, 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 it's an interesting team. It's, it's, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm glad that this is a tough year for a lot of people in a lot of ways. It's not always to have good entertainment and college basketball for the team people care about. I'm all for it. Yeah, going on your point, Graham, it was definitely. Uh, maybe even less than 24 hours ago where I was like trying to plan out your spring or whatever. It's like, well, don't think the Spartans are going to be playing past the Big Ten tournament. So that's really going to open up March for certain things. But now you kind of have to maybe retract, <laughs> retract your schedule or adjust things back a little bit. <laughs> hey, now, I would never plan anything assuming Michigan State wasn't going to be allowed around in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Now let's go to my conversation with Nate Atkins. I am now joined by LSJ sports storyteller Nate Atkins. Nathan, how are you doing on this fine Wednesday afternoon? Doing great. You know, I've been looking into some tape of football players, and that's just a few hours after we watched uh, Michigan State beat a top five t- 
team in basketball in Illinois, and I didn't know that we'd see that either. And um, you kind of mix the two, and it feels like there's at least something to look forward to and digest and talk about in a different way than kind of the same old it's felt like for a little while. So it's looking good. Would you say that breaking down the film, does that put you in your happy place? Yeah, it does. Uh, when I could actually get you know legit amounts of film, and so I'll give a little shout out to Keon Coleman, one of the Michigan State recruits, because this is what I wish other other recruits would do: is post their full film, because um, a lot of people's highlights look nice. But yeah, it's it's always a stretch to get actual uh, game footage on a lot of guys, and when you can actually get a full game, it's uh, it, it definitely puts me in a happy place. Yeah, well, we'll start calling you the Tape Lord from uh, from here on out. Is it, do you think that's a nickname that'll stick for you? I don't know that the readers and the listeners will buy that so much, but um, if you if you feel better using that, go for it. Yes, thank you. All right, well, the reason we are having you on today is because uh, on Thursday, you will be having a film review on Michigan State three-star wide receiver recruit Keon Coleman, the aforementioned Keon Coleman, up on our website. So we want to kind of want to tease that story a little bit and kind of get your thoughts on what, you, what you've seen from him. So before you start, I, I want to go first and talking about Coleman in that I thought his junior film was better than his senior film. I don't know if you would agree with that assessment, but that, but there could be a myriad of factors. They might've had a different quarterback. They had a very shortened season down in Louisiana as well. I think they only played five or six games. So there really wasn't as much to be able to put on tape as well. But regardless, if you're looking at either his junior or senior year highlight tape, uh, he makes a lot, he's made a lot of big plays and, uh, he does have the playmaking ability, obviously, since, I mean, there's a reason, you know, Mel Tucker and company made him uh, a priority recruit. So I guess what are your initial observations about Coleman? Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I guess I just kind of watched him in a row and not separate it quite the same way. But it does seem like I did kind of feel like the senior year film was sort of, uh, I don't know how I want to say this. Not that he's going through the motions, but just kind of like, let's simplify this. Let's just run some screens Let's just run some rub routes. Let's just get him the ball and go. It wasn't really a – didn't feel like the full complement of what it could be. But I guess you go back to kind of what you said about, you know, reduced season and they probably didn't know if they'd have it or when they'd have it. And um, they're just not really adding these layers to, uh, you know, the season the same way. And then he's, you know, also balancing it with basketball and he's trying to make his college decision. And so I don't know quite um how how that all plays into it but definitely it did kind of feel like i don't know like sometimes the game felt too easy to him or looked to me like it felt too easy to him um just in his senior year and some of the guys he went up against i can see why he'd say that because uh you know there's not a lot of six four receivers you see in some of these you know it was a former five nine white linebacker in ohio i can speak from experience and saying when you see that it can kind of uh shock you too so i wouldn't be shocked if that happened with him gotcha well well let's start with the positives what are the things that impressed you the most about coleman i just think the the sheer size and uh the different things you can do with that you know he's the thing about when we when we're looking at prospects from the high school level to the college level and then when you're obviously when you're looking at college the pros you're always trying to recalibrate to okay well what happens when they get up here and um you know, and there's bigger players and all this, but height is still height. And 6'4", to be 6'4 right now in high school is absurd for a wide receiver and to move the way he does. For a little bit of perspective on that, uh, Calvin Johnson was 6'5". Kenny Galladay is 6'4". Julio Jones is 6'3". And those are considered 
like the bigger and better receivers in the NFL. You look at some of the guys, top receivers right now, like Devontae Adams, he's six one. Pretty much anything above six feet tall. Odell Beckham's right around six feet tall. That's kind of like a tall range anyway. So in high school, especially what you have, and I see why they why they did this, why you're just running slants and uh and, and crossers and stuff like that, is that how do you get around that frame when you're in coverage so you can keep up with it? First of all, it's hard to get around it. The catch radius is so big, and then you have to try and tackle that. So it, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm watching this film, and at first I'm not necessarily like jumping out of my seat when I'm watching him move, but then you realize like it just looks slower because there's a lot of body he's trying to move all at once. But then like nobody tackles him, and when he's got the ball in his hands and he's getting hit and these guys are bouncing off his body, it looks to me often like, He's running the same speed all the time, whether there's two guys on him, whether there's no guys on him, and just kind of makes it a hard thing for an opposing defense to know what to do with. I mean, you you can't make your cornerbacks taller. You can't make your linebackers bigger. So unless you have those players on the field, it's just kind of a situation where you say, well, we're going to have to just hope and pray and, and hope he drops it and hope that the, the quarterback misses and it's just kind of a there's just such a floor to that kind of a player before we even get into the ceiling yeah so you mentioned the the screens and the crossers uh i i, I just kind of wondered if they ran all those because they didn't trust their quarterback to to get him deep and that might have hurt and that might have hurt the film a little bit in terms of you're wondering why aren't they taking deep shots with them down the field for all the reasons that you mentioned you have a six four guy there aren't a lot <laughs> there are very few of any six four high school cornerbacks on the opposite side you know with the field stopping them too so it might be an incomplete picture but obviously i think in this situation you just kind of have to trust what mel tucker and his staff see in him otherwise they wouldn't have gone so hard after him uh if they didn't think that he could be a, a, a an important contributor for them yeah, I think you might be right about the quarterback. Maybe that's part of the drop off from junior year to senior year. Obviously, we haven't looked deep enough into that. Yeah, I, <laughs> at all I the uh, guys on his team. Honestly, but that's something I, I probably notice, should have known going in before I said that. But uh, anyway, well, the, no. But along those lines, one thing I definitely noticed, and I, I guess I kind of took it as cockiness, but it might be a lack of trust. But when he would when he would come off the line and he was open, he was like flailing his arms, like almost to tell the quarterback, like, hey, don't even think about going anywhere else but here. Put it right here. Don't miss. <laughs> and it just, like, cracked me up because he would do it on, like, he would do it on a slant route. He would do it, like, on some of the most obvious routes, like, in the end zone where, like, I don't know how you couldn't see that. But it looked at me almost like he didn't necessarily trust the guy who was throwing to read that and just get the ball to him. And so – I wonder if that played into – if that was going on that way, I mean, that could kind of play into – his routes just kind of – they broke off halfway through sometimes as he sort of there, – there was one play I watched where um, they did play action fade route, and that, that which you think he'd be the guy all day long they go to. Quarterback bites. Nobody's covering him at all, and the quarterback just looks the other way and kind of dumps it down, and he's just like jumping and throwing his arms frustrated. So – it was a weird film to break down in, in that sense of fitting it into what that team had and what that offense had. But the moments where he does get the ball, and especially you saw it on the crossers, I mean, some of these kids I watched like on defense, just they just kind of gave up. They're like, ah, oh, we'll let the safety get him. I'm not fast enough for that, and I'm not going to bring him down anyway. And that's why they put him at punt returner too. It just kind of was like – it was a little bit of like watching Derrick Henry's high school film 
Um, maybe to a lesser degree because he would bounce off like 16 guys. But uh, there was definitely some of that like way too big for this level of play. And But it's interesting because we're talking about a guy who at one point people thought might go to Tulane because yep. I'm guessing because of the basketball element to it. So part of him might also enjoy being the, the kind of big guy in the game. Also because it's his home state. Yeah, but – you know, then he departs from that and goes to Michigan State. So, right. um, I don't know. That part's interesting to me, though, because I was looking at his offer list for football. He's got like schools like Auburn, Florida State, Miami, Oklahoma, Texas A&M, Penn State, Tennessee, and yet for the longest time, for them to think he's going to go to Tulane, you know, you think it's a hometown thing, but then like the other finalists are Kansas and Michigan State, which are two, you know, big time basketball programs. I just I absolutely think the basketball element is huge for him, and that's going to be just a wild card in this entire uh, process. Not only to you know to, to keep him healthy, to keep him motivated. Uh, I definitely think that's going to be a hurdle going in here. That's just very different from other players. So I, it, they did have a new quarterback this year, uh, but it seems like he had a couple decent games. Like he, in this one <laughs> right up a road, he he went like twenty five of. 40 for like 347 yards so and, and then coleman had seven and 190 something or seven for 145 and touchdown on that game and like i don't remember seeing i don't remember seeing a a single game on his on his highlight reel where they, they showed every single one of those catches or whatever so maybe maybe he was maybe he was sandbagging excluding some things on those high on those highlight tapes but then i just saw another write-up where uh-huh. their quarterback only threw for 115 yards in a loss so they, they were so <laughs> So maybe one's an aberration as compared to the other one. So who who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And and this is the great challenge of trying to look at these is because, I mean, it's hard enough when NFL teams are scouting college players and you're looking at someone in the American conference and trying to decide, is this guy really good? Or the linebackers on Temple just athletes who shouldn't be on the field? And that's why they have the NFL combine. We don't quite have – and that's why I think it's it's a challenge for Michigan State and all these schools that are not making a lot of in-person visits, and they're looking at this and trying to determine all these things that we're trying to determine. So at the end of the day, I think it's easier to side with Coleman and say, okay, what do we know about him? Well, he's we know he's 6'4". We know he's a basketball player who plays above the rim, can do these one-handed slams you know, from you know, launching out. He can do behind-the-back dunks. And there's this rare athleticism mixed with a really big frame and we're going to try and figure that out. So I definitely see, you know, why Michigan state would go after that, you know, especially, you know, especially Mel Tucker coming from the NFL where he was, you know, he coached in a division against Calvin Johnson. And that was an era when, you know, when Julio Jones was, was that guy. And like they did those simple things too. I mean, Julio Jones has forever been that just in breaking route guy that, you know, we're not going to overthink it. We're just going to get him the ball in a slant and see what you do with it. I have a feeling that's exactly what his role is going to be at Michigan State, in part because that's what his skill set is, but in part because, let's also be real, he's he's a freshman who we don't know how normal the buildup is going to be, but especially if he's going to try and play basketball. There's a lot of mental load, and you just don't want to overcomplicate it, and I don't think they're going to. And even with some of the wide receivers transferring out, there's still a ton of wide receivers <laughs> on the Michigan State program or program roster for next year. So it it might be tough just to find time on the field, especially when you have Naylor back and you have Jaden Jaden Reed back and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and it kind of reminds me when I was uh 
when I was in college at the University of Missouri, they got the number one receiver in the nation, Dorio Green Beckham, who was this similar uh, skill set to a higher higher degree of productivity, but he was this big bodied uh, big body receiver and he wanted to play basketball. Then he decided not to play basketball, but his freshman year was really underwhelming because it, it just took him a while to join the playbook. But at the all, at the same time, they had a lot of receivers coming back. And so they just didn't, you know, they said, if you're not ready, we're going to go with the guys who are more ready. I think you'll see some of that. Well, with Michigan state, because we, we kind of know what Jaden Reed and Jalen Naylor are. And what's interesting to me though, is they, they're they're not the same skill set as Ken Coleman. These are not six four, right. get it across the middle guys. So there's still a room and a role to develop that if you can simplify it and just say, okay, you're going to come in and sometimes you'll, you know, you you may run one or two screens a game. You may run um, one double move a game. You know, they you saw them do stuff uh, like with Trayvon Morgan last year. They in um, Trey Mosley, they would just occasionally throw a guy in there who hasn't really done a whole lot. And they say, okay, you want to put a safety over Jalen Naylor? We're just going to run, and this will be your role as two routes a game. And I think that's that's the kind of thing he's going to start with at Michigan State. So do you see him, and having said all that, do you see him playing a lot? Or do you think that'll be, do you think it'll really just be sprinkled in maybe once every couple games and see if they can find lightning in a bottle? Uh, no, I think he'll probably have a role each game. But I, like I said, I do think it'll be really limited to you know, one, one quick slant, you know, one double move, you know, there's just a couple of those game because it, it is, it is a transition to this. And, and especially if we're, if we're looking at a high school film, there's the two of us and we're not real impressed by the uh, sophistication of their offense and the routes he's running. You move that up a level to the big 10 and it's going to be that much more simplistic until he comes along in that area. So, but at the same time, look at the, I mean, you've got, Six foot Jaden Reed, and you've got I think Naylor is six foot, so four inches of height on those guys. It's just a very different piece. It's kind of like they just lost Trayvon Morgan, who is that huge bodied right. guy they throw it up to in the end zone. I think one time, <laughs> uh, that well, kind of role can, but, can be there for Keon. But what a moment it was for that guy! It was a great moment. Yes. It was like triple <laughs> coverage. Yeah. So, and that might be it. May be more of a red zone thing too. Is I mean, especially. They've got if they can't get something together at tight end. I mean, there's got to be somebody who's going to go up across the middle and challenge for a contested pass in the back of the end zone. So the role is there, but I do think it's one of those things. This will be lesser than Dora Green Beckham, but there's going to be heightened expectations versus what can actually produce right away. And so, you know, that's something they might have to manage too a little bit. But I mean, it's not like he's a you know, a five-star recruit. Right. It's just a little bit of hope. But uh, he's still got some height, and, you know, whether it's uh, Anthony Russo, whether it's Peyton Thorne, or maybe it's Hamp Fay, uh <laughs> getting him the ball, uh, that gives, they'll give him a nice, you know, target for, for certain play calls, like you said, maybe going going up the seam on a in triple coverage or a fade route. And so, I mean, those he just has advantages in that area where maybe shorter receivers wouldn't have. See, I think that's one thing that can kind of help him a little bit because it's going to be a challenge for – you know, whoever plays quarterback does not have much built up with the receivers who are coming back. Even it's Peyton Thorne. It's still very limited amount of time, or it's going to be a guy who's never played with these guys. But when you have a player like Keon Coleman, where just the, the whole catch radius is so much bigger then the passes don't necessarily need to be as on point as they would with everyone else. 
Um, the same time, the routes aren't going to be as nuanced either. So he may not adjust the same way that I think you'll see a Jaden Reed be able to, to adjust. So, like I said, I, I think they're going to really limit. They're going to look at this the way that you know the NFL teams do, which is where Mel Tucker's always basing things on, which is it's like a toolbox. Every player they have is a different element in that toolbox. And this is a guy they just don't have. They don't have. Right. They have two six-feet receivers who fly either vertically in Jalen Naylor or uh, or horizontally in, in Jaden Reed. This is more of a guy that's that's big-bodied in between those, like go across the middle and, and see what a linebacker does with you kind of thing. Yeah, and, and with Mel Tucker's penchant for roster churning, as we've seen uh, in this offseason, uh, Coleman, Coleman's one of his guys, so he's going to get every opportunity in the world to try to get on the field and, and shine in whatever – capacity or you know certain element of the game you know the coaching staff sees sees him fit well and that's part of it too is he's if he's building this whole thing around recruiting which is what you do in a rebuild anyway but they're especially taking it far with with some of their approaches the number of guys they offer um but part of that is it's there's a marketing element to it and you want to show quarterbacks they've only recruited one quarterback so far that's uh that's out of high school you want to show them what they're working with and so you're going to need to get him on the field to some level. I'm not saying that's going to be at the front of their minds, but that's going to absolutely enter the conversation when you're talking to guys who are going to be freshmen next year who are quarterbacks is to say, look at this 6'4 guy out of uh, Louisiana that we just added and think about you know when he's a sophomore and a junior and a senior, how many teams have a, have a 6'4 in-breaking receiver like that who can just you – know, you, ha- you just have to put it in his little catch radius, which is – I say little as a huge catch radius, but it's a good selling point to give to quarterbacks because right now this is what they're up against is recruiting quarterbacks in Michigan State the past few years. Not the easiest sell in the world. So they're trying to find anything they can do to make it an easier sell. And Keon Coleman can be part of that. For sure. You know, we've uh we've had off off mic conversations about this recruiting class and especially, you know, Keon Coleman and you know, was kind of a very necessary get for the Spartans in terms of, you know, upping the quality of this class. And if they had been able to to keep Estime, the the four star running back out in Jersey, Audric Estime, and then you know Rayshon Benny out of Oak Park, I mean, that would have been about as good of a first class as you could have expected from Mel Tucker. And the fact that they couldn't keep the, those guys hurts hurts the class overall a little bit. But at the same time, get as I said, getting Coleman into that group kind of gave gave it a little little small boost back back up. Yeah. Especially, you know, I think I've I've said it. I think the Benny one is the most crushing because it is an eight-state guy that you lost to a team that you're trying to pounce on in Michigan. But at least with him and and a team that you've beat consistently and that you beat, yeah. Um, at least with him, they will have many other chances to get in-state guys if this starts working the way they want it to. In-state is not is going to be a territory they can catch up ground in. It also matters, though, to come out early and get a guy from Louisiana and start tapping into that because it's really hard right now to say to go down there where, I mean, like I read some of the teams on this list of Auburn and Florida State and Texas A&M and Oklahoma, and to tell those schools, tell kids getting recruited by those schools, hey, come to Michigan State where we won two games last year and we're in the freezing cold in the Big Ten and you've never seen us play. And it's a harder sell until you build a program up a little bit. So. To get one guy even, and if it works with him, you know you can start showing those. Louisiana pumps out receivers all the time, and so if you're able to use them in more creative and ambitious ways than many teams in the northern half of the country seem to want to do, 
then it's a selling point and it can it can start to build something too. Yeah, and when I talked to Coleman a couple weeks ago for, for a story that ran on LSJ.com, go ahead and check it out. Uh, he definitely had like no familiarity at all with Michigan State until they started recruiting him. So when you're going out to work someone in Louisiana who, you know, doesn't really know that much about Michigan State, that's that can be a hard sell too, but you know, they they were able to sell him with Tucker, and then the basketball thing probably you know, getting Tom Izzo on board to to offer him a spot on the basketball team also really played a huge factor in that for sure. Yeah, and I again I haven't talked to Keon Coleman, but I'm just reading the tea leaves. I just really think the basketball element's going to be huge because you've got a guy who's committed and has understood that it's for football, but he chose an offer way below the other offers he has in football. And he keeps, you know, adding all these basketball highlights to his page. It's just kind of impressive how he keeps, you know, the fact that he's playing at number one, but the fact that he's, he's, he keeps building up this highlight reel. And then to have a coach like Tom Izzo, you know, give that assist and say, yeah, you can play basketball here. It's probably different than what he's hearing from, from certain schools, or it's at least more enticing than to hear, yo, you could play on the, on the Miami basketball team. I mean, so. I mean, if I was averaging 30 points a game, Nate, let me tell you what I would be doing. Uh, I would be posting the highlights from every game on my Twitter page, even if I was uh, committed to play another sport in college. So I, I would let everybody know, hey, I am better than everybody else on the court. Boom. I did like how he called I, one of his videos from junior year. He called it uh, bag season. So <laughs> it was time to rack up the offers. And yeah. he sure did it in football, and I, I guess basketball hasn't taken off the same way. Curious, though, what do you think <laughs> of his basketball tape? Uh, I would like to know more about the teams they're playing. To be honest, it seems like yeah. it seems like uh, 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 if you so not you don't follow world soccer all that much, but uh, there's always a joke. I think this happens in the NBA a little bit too, but it's like uh, they'll say he looks like he's playing against farmers, or you know. Bulgaria looks like he's playing against Bulgarian farmers or you know some other random country and it's it does seem like he's the high school teams he's playing is playing above his level but I am sure they he they've seen the AAU tape and whatever and uh I'm sure he's doing just fine on there otherwise they wouldn't commit commit to that at all you know you know what I mean well I'm just curious how many I just don't know he's gotten a lot of I don't know offers or hype in basketball it just seems like he's a football recruit who's He's yeah. continually so kind I, of boosting himself I, as a basketball. I do, I do know that Virginia Tech was one of the schools that that did offer him in basketball. I think that was the biggest. Okay, that was the biggest offer besides the. I guess we this would be a walk on for Michigan. I guess we would classify it as a walk on for Michigan State basketball, right? Yeah, sure. yeah, it would be. Um, yeah, it's interesting. He, I mean, I from what I can see, I totally see the same thing. I mean. <laughs> A lot of his scoring that I'm seeing is just like not any. No one's really around and contesting anything he can <laughs> it seems, do. And, it seems like he's going against a low, lower level of competition in high school. Yes, uh, but some he does some things that I think are, you know, a little bit isolated. When he'll kind of like just run out to the three point line, turn around, just hoist up a shot. Um, he's not afraid. He's not. He doesn't play like a one trick pony. At least he's not just this euro step in the open court type dunk guy. I mean, he's he's hit some deep threes. He's clearly a kid who really believes in in what he can he's got, do. He's got crazy athleticism and can get and can get to the bucket when he wants. And you can't that stuff you 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 know that just comes naturally. You know. The one link I'll make though is I noticed this on a couple of his punt returns when he would just kind of see a lane that is I would never have seen, and I wonder if that like he'll just kind of freeze the defense, turn, 
plant his foot in the ground and go. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, there's a new lane for this guy who's faster than everyone else. And I wonder if, if basketball translates in that way, you know, getting the ball in the open court and driving that way. It's just very different than what you normally practice as a football player. You know, as a receiver, you're running all these routes, but you're not really running it in the sense of how do I see and manipulate five different guys in my line of vision? Um, I've heard guys talk about that in the past where taking punt returns is, is similar to, you know, open court basketball in some ways. And so just kind of is neat to see those highlights kind of intermingle in that way and, and see what it can create. And who knows, maybe in time, Michigan State gives him a crack at the at the punt return job. It couldn't be any worse on the punt and kick return game <laughs> than what's been for the, ever since I've been here. I've been here since the 27, right at the end of the 2016 season. So, yeah, it's been the punt and kickoff return game yeah. has been awful. So you might, at this point, I'd just be like, you know what? Just throw back there in game one. See, see what happens. All right. Well, you don't I, usually see six, four players who were uh, in that role, but yeah. you know, the options are not, Hey, uh, this is 2021, rude, man. Right? There's no, there's no rules. Uh, that's a market inefficiency, Nate. That's what that is. And Mel Tucker is going to exploit the market inefficiency. <laughs> maybe right. that's, maybe that was the difference. He, he offered him a punt return role and Tulane, you know, they were willing to go pretty far, but they couldn't go right. to the punt role. That they couldn't that, give that spot's held down by some shifty five foot ten guy. We can't do that. Couldn't give him that special teams nod for sure. All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation on Keon Coleman. Before we check out of here, um, we do want to talk very briefly about the two transfers that have come in since we last convened, and uh that is a inside linebacker, Ben Van Summeren, who uh transferred from of all places, Michigan. Uh he was a he's a three star player, and then defensive back i believe he's a cornerback chester kimbrough from florida so uh once again we're seeing transfers in from you know you mentioned earlier you're talking about wake forest and auburn and, and whatnot where those transfers are coming from two more tra- in transfers from power five programs here so they're really you know bell tucker's really kind of going after it still in the transfer portal yeah there might have been a little bit of uh hey why'd you have to take ray sean benny from us okay well can we do to get back at you a little bit. Um, takes Van Summeren from him. I did love uh, Ben Van Summeren had a post, I think it was on Instagram, where he just said, um, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain, which is just a good way to announce that. Uh, <laughs> a good, way to, like a good way to say that you're, that you're leaving for your in-state rival school. <laughs> yeah, for I sure. I think, if, um, it, I think if anybody from Michigan State transferred to Michigan, like I'm sure – our timelines oh. would just have a complete meltdown about it. So yeah, it would go the same way, yeah. but um, I, I don't know a whole lot about uh, Ben Van Summeren. It's just interesting to me that, you know, his brother um, is a, is a four-star prospect as well. And it's just interesting that they're both six, three, but um, his younger brother, Alex Van Summeren is listed as 50 pounds heavier. So those are some interesting body comps, like same exact height, but, um, two different positions. Ben Van Summeren's inside linebacker, and Alex is a defensive tackle. So, you know, they seem to be somewhat interested in those package deal type recruiting angles, like they are doing with uh, the name I'm going to have you pronounce because I won't, but Ma, Ma linebacker. Ma Nauteote. Yes. I got it. I think his brother's still available, right? Yep. He has not committed anywhere else at this point. Forever. So. That that could enter the the equation a little bit, but um, you know we they're losing Antoine Simmons. They're, they're bringing in Moss, so that's one linebacker. But that room that room could use some more bodies. So um, that's probably kind of what he's he's there for. And yeah, 
Um, but but how many, But when you only play two inside linebackers, how how many inside linebackers do you need on your roster? Yeah, not a ton, not a ton. But they want to keep pipelines going. It's sure. just your. It just was not a very deep room. I mean, even though they only had two, um, when when Noah Harvey had to go out, um, you noticed it last yeah. year. Let me yeah. say that. It, Chase, Chase Klein. Cool. Chase Klein was number three there, right? Remember, yeah, am I remembering yeah. that correctly? Yeah. They've just they've just got to populate that room a little bit more. And plus, like as excited as I am about Ma, I mean he's a freshman, so right. this is at least a guy who's not a freshman who's who can maybe step in. I, he hasn't played a lot at Michigan. He's, I think he had like eight tackles last year, but you know, but he's at least been in the in in, in a weight room program and it's a little more physically built. Um, Chester Kimbrough, those like before you go in, he is the first defensive back transfer in for Michigan State. They've lost. Four other trans, four other defensive backs to transfer in: Julian Barnett, Davian Williams, Christian Jackson, and Dominic Long. So it seemed like a position of need. Yeah, and that that has been interesting to see just how much movement is at that position, considering that area of the field is kind of Mel Tucker's wheelhouse, I guess. Well, it's certainly Harlan Barnett's wheelhouse. And, and Harlan Barnett, but you know, it's just I, I wonder if Mel Tucker's a little more heavy-handed there than than maybe some other spots, just of what he wants it to look like. At the same time, though, they lost, you know, they lost Mike Tressel to Cincinnati as the safeties coach, so that can play into it a little bit too. But uh, you know, Chester Kimbrough is a, you know, is a kind of a high three-star prospect. Another New Orleans or another Louisiana guy um, played at Florida. It's it's just you could just tell Mel's trying to take whenever he can little opportunities to kind of infiltrate SEC talent into this part of the country where there's not that much of it i mean you don't see it a lot at michigan ohio state is the 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 school that's gone down there and done that but um in indiana starting to they 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 read florida a little bit now with tom allen but in general that's kind of a new uh new area And, and obviously if you could add some speed to these uh these somewhat slower big 10 games it's kind of your best chance of catching up on certain teams so so i get it all right. Any final thoughts, Nate? Before uh, before we check out of here? Uh, well, let's just say I think we had promised that they add at least five transfers. We'll do another podcast. It <laughs> only took two of them, and it was really Keon Coleman that that really sparked this podcast. Right. So maybe we're just getting more flexible and, and more. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I just missed chatting with you. And, oh. uh, well, let's have to find another excuse <laughs> to do it again sometime. Tears but. are flowing. So so what we're saying is now Nate is guaranteeing at least three more transfers in before before the Ooh. transfer portal closes which i does it ever close i don't know before the beginning of the season how about that <laughs> i do think we'll have at least three more so and as we said at the beginning of the segment be sure to check out nate's article on thursday about uh our louisiana three-star wide receiver keon coltman thank you for joining us for this edition of spartan speak a production of the lansing state journal detroit free press and the usa today network if you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it, please consider subscribing. You can follow our coverage at lsj.com, freep.com, and on Twitter at Graham underscore couch, at Chris Solari, at Nate Atkins underscore, at Phil underscore friend, and to LSJ Greenwhite. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left.
Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.